The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This is your host, Ellie Weiss. As previously discussed many times on this program, we'll be talking about living with wildlife right here at home. My guest today is Dr. John Hadidian, Director of the Urban Wildlife Project of the Humane Society U.S. Founded in 1954, the Humane Society today has grown in both scope and outreach, nationally and internationally, and thus its mission, too, over the years, has also understandably had to grow in scope beyond the previously considered simple definitions of animal welfare and rescue related to cruelty and abuse of our pets and our domestic working animals. Today, we'll focus our conversation around the concept and ideas of the humane backyard, which includes not only living and coexisting with wildlife in our urban areas and the natural outcome of dealing with the conflicts that arise, and what this means and how it is accomplished. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome my guest, Dr. John Hadidian. Thank you, Ellie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. I am so excited about our upcoming conversation as this has a lot to do with what this program our wild world is about so how about we start by you giving us a little background about you and how you came to be with HSUS at that's Humane Society US United States and let's segue into what this uh, project uh, living uh, the urban wildlife project and wild neighbors is all about okay uh, it's a it's a long story, but I'll make it short. I graduated with a Ph.D. in primatology from Penn State University in 1979 and began looking around for jobs. I went into primatology because I was very interested from early childhood in, in animals and, and animal behavior in particular. And this was one of those little sub-disciplines uh, where you could really focus on just that aspect of animals, not not their use or their management or their, uh, you know, the kind of paradigm of, of being able to harvest and maintain populations, but animals interacting and, and behaving in naturalistic environments just for strictly observational purposes. So, not finding a job, of course, in that <laughs> field. <laughs> 
we decided to move to Washington, D.C. and further ex explore opportunities. I was able to attach myself to a research project because in 1980, uh, the National Park Service, as well as others in the Washington, D.C. area, became very concerned with the movement of a raccoon rabies outbreak toward the Washington, D.C. area. This had begun some years earlier in Western Virginia, and it was coming, and nobody knew much of anything about how many raccoons were out there, what the raccoons did, how often they came into contact with people, and what kind of public health threat this might pose. So I picked up with uh, the Park Service and with its project and uh, continued with it, kept going, and found myself ensconced as the wildlife biologist for the National Park Service's National Capital Region. That's quite a leap. It was quite a leap. And I, I loved the job. It involved a lot of things, but it focused primarily on parks and animals in urban areas. So Rock Creek Park, for example, where we did a lot of our raccoon research is about 1,700 hectares of pure forest right in the middle of a conurbation, which is Washington, D.C., and it is, you know, Park Service is mandated to let natural processes work there unless there's a compelling reason not to. And there were some compelling reasons, but, you know, primarily this was an oasis in the middle of a city. And I, who had thought urban wildlife as a term was an oxymoron up to this point, began to realize slowly that cities really are full of life, non-human life, of wild animals, not just pigeons and rats and, and starlings, but all sorts of things like raccoons and opossums and now increasingly deer, fox, beaver. Coyotes, bears, mountain exactly. lions. Yes, not to mention uh, the microfauna, the small things, the right. tiny critters that uh, are everywhere. Believe it or not, the grounds of the White House, back in the 1970s, we had a huge problem with meadow voles. Meadow what? Voles. Okay. Which any farmer will tell you are a scourge to orchards and, and agricultural plantings because uh, they, be, they can erupt, which is a way of saying the populations can grow rapidly almost overnight and they can attack crops or, or gnaw the bark off of orchard trees and, and be kind of problematic. Well, well the White House didn't, didn't have fruit trees, but it had euonymus beds and the voles were girdling them and killing enormous sections of this ornamental plant on the White House grounds. So let's back up one little second. You, you said a whole lot there in a very short period of time, and you said it very succinctly and very well. And um, I would like to just jump in at this moment and mention that on the web at YouTube, there is a great little video and presentation of Dr. Hadidian um, for the DC Environmental Network. And if you want to go and watch that after this program, of course, it will explain a little bit more in a very detailed way of, of the Urban Wildlife Project. But I'd like to back up a little bit. Um, you had said an interesting point there that you didn't realize, and I think this is important for our audience, that we do live with wildlife beyond squirrels and, and what we like to look at. And it's sort of a natural occurrence that, um, and we talked about this a bit yesterday on the phone, that we enjoy looking at wildlife, we like having it out there, uh, but then it starts to 
intrude or intervene in our systems which creates problems. Can you tell us about what some of these problems were that you noticed? You mentioned one, raccoons and a rabies outbreak, and how the Park Service at that time, or the organizations that we had in place at the time, would deal with this. How, how did this all come together to end up in a specific project called Urban Wildlife and Wild Neighbors? Yeah, um, that's a great question, and I could go on forever, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to. Uh, you know, beleaguer people, but the, the the two really profound things that have crossed my mind as I've done this work are one that you know we used to say, well, we're taking habitat away from these these animals, and you know they have no place to go. Actually, we're creating habitat and opportunities for them, and we're well providing said. them with things that they don't have in other places, such as abundant food resources or good shelter or safety from exploitive activities like hunting and trapping that that you know they're they're out there trying to survive they're looking at the opportunities they're evaluating what does and doesn't work for them and increasingly they're picking cities as places where things really do work that's so a really the, important concept because uh, we have a tendency to look at wildlife as what it means to us our enjoyment our entertainment and then not often look at it as separate from us, that it's doing what it does and that it is a part of the natural ecosystem and it makes it function. That's that's a really important concept that uh, this program tries to get across to our our listeners and our audience. So how do we go about, without interrupting you or getting you too off track here, how do we go about engaging our communities, and this is going to lead into some really interesting uh, projects that uh, John is working on um, that started back in the 1970s. How do we go about creating these environments that we make for us that do, as you just said, provide everything wildlife needs, so why wouldn't they come in when we think we're, they're staying out? How do we go about creating and engaging people to think a little more outside the box that wildlife has its own life? Well, well another great question, and if I can just, before we talk about that, address the other great question which you asked, which is about these conflicts that we have on occasion with everything from squirrels to beaver to deer. Um, you know, it's been my experience, and I think it's a general, it, it, it can be made as a general point, that the problems people experience become more important to them than the vast periods of time when they don't have problems. Ah. So you look at the newspaper and you don't see peace continues in such and such a place. You see news that a war has broken out or that a conflict has started because that's what we focus on. We focus on those disturbances. And, and I think people in cities really have a close connection to the natural world that surrounds them and by far the positive experiences they have with the wild animals overwhelm the negative ones but the negative ones get all the press I'm really glad to hear you say that because in a lot of my experience I live outside of uh, Aspen Colorado in one of the largest wilderness areas the snowmass uh, Aspen Wilderness Area. It's a 16 square block urbanized area, smack dab in the wilderness. And I hear a lot about the conflict, as you just said. And we have a lot of second homeowner or new population that comes here to 
fence off their piece of paradise or living next to wild spaces, but as soon as that bear or the mountain lion or the raccoon gets into their house, into their car, there's the problem. Yes. So, so how do you, so how do you how do you go about with this project dealing with these conflicts? The conflicts have to be dealt with really. I mean, there are two kinds of conflicts first. One is the raccoon in the chimney, the squirrel in the attic that affects the individual property owner. The other are the geese on the golf course or the deer in the county or municipal park that affects really a larger group of people. The beaver that floods the, um, you know, a pasture or s those sorts of things that are really different kinds of conflicts. So if we can simply talk about the individual property owner first. Uh, those things have to be solved in a way that, as far as we're concerned, meets the customer's need, which is not to have that animal living in the house, but does so in a way that humanely treats that animal and allows that animal to continue to go on in its known home range where resources are, you know, are learned and identified and, and just continue its life in, in, in that environment. And what's so, the second conflict? The, the, the population level conflicts require different resources, different uh, communities of interest, different stakeholders, and um, really approaches that we're only beginning to develop and explore. Beaver is a real simple solution because beaver occupy most 3% of a landscape. They stay in the floodplains. They build dams when they are stimulated by rushing water to think that they can back up and impound an area, they want three feet or more of water depth behind them so that they can um, survive the winter. And when that happens in a place where you don't want it, and unfortunately we built all sorts of things in floodplains like put down railroad tracks or put sanitary sewers after beaver were completely trapped out. When that happens, what we do is go in and regulate the water level, not take the beaver out. So you're you're you've just brought up another concept, the human manipulation of a landscape. Not only are we building developments, human communities that are perfect for wildlife to move in because we provide food, water, shelter, not always security. Um, from our perspective in terms of we want to get rid of them, the conflicts you've just talked about. But um, further, I, I, I'm sorry, I just lost my point. So, Well, what you're, I know exactly what you're getting at. You're thank getting you. The preventative things we could do if we thought about designing problems out. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday, and uh, you would called it the biophilic city and the biophilic landscape. So before we get into that too deeply, let's build up a little bit more and talk about some of the projects and how you go about literally um, physically working with these communities. How do, you, how do you gather all these stakeholders together, those who want to leave the wildlife alone and feel it deserves to be there, that they have the right to be there, and that their welfare is important to the person who thinks that it's just an annoyance, doesn't recognize its place in the natural ecosystem and the function that it performs for us. How do you bring all those people together? Well, great. Uh, the HSUS long ago dedicated itself to providing 
humane services for people in urban, urban environments. So we have, um, in addition to a, a model business, which we call Humane Wildlife Services, which you can, you can see if you go to the uh, main uh, HSUS webpage, which is www.humanesociety.org. That'll take you there, and um, these guys are developing, implementing, and, and perfecting the model for that kind of conflict resolution that involves the squirrel or the raccoon in the house. We have a specialist in coyote behavior and who goes around and teaches communities how to live with coyotes and how to deal with problem coyotes by negatively conditioning them and through a process called hazing, a lot of which is done in, in Colorado. You've, you've really, communities in Colorado have really blazed the way with this concept. And then we have another specialist who goes around and talks to communities about uh, controlling deer populations through immunocontraception. So we've really got a lot of tools. And we bring them into the urban environment and create these equations that are humane, responsible, environmentally you know, sound, and we hope lasting. Well, this is an incredibly exciting conversation. Just listening to you talk just fires so many uh, points and questions of agreement and ways to get our audience to listen. But right now, we're going to cut away to a short break. So once again, my guest is Dr. John Hadidian with the Humane Society of the U.S., and he is the director of the Urban Wildlife Project of the Humane Society. And just before the break, he mentioned um, Humane Wildlife Services. So after the break, we're going to talk about that. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com, and now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Is your business model robust enough? In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Our Wild World and Ellie Weiss and my special guest today, Dr. John Hadidian, the Director of the Urban Wildlife Project of the Humane Society U.S. Before the break, we... John gave us a whole lot of information about the project, the Urban Wildlife Project, that we do have wildlife in our urban areas and that we need to learn to coexist and live with it. And what, as opposed to just saying we need to learn to live with it, John works about how to go about accomplishing this. So right before the break, we had mentioned Humane Wildlife Services. And um, on this program previously, we have had a lot of conversations with various people about our United States Department of Agricultural Agriculture Wildlife Services. So I want to make sure that these two um, approaches are not confused at in any way, shape, or form. So, John, could you tell us about these different approaches, what the Humane Wildlife Services does versus the USDA Wildlife Services? Yeah, and the third leg to that stool would be the private businesses, really, which really are more closely related to what we're trying to do. But we interact with um, the folks in wildlife services all the time. They, they're, they've always been an enigma to us because they invest a lot of time and effort and they have some really bright people doing non-lethal solutions to things. But in the field, we find very often that they just don't simply don't implement those. This beaver... Uh, you know, approach to solving beaver conflicts, which I was uh, getting into a little earlier, is a prime example. We put in what are called flow devices that can prevent beaver from damming areas so much that they flood. And other people, USDA Wildlife Services being one, um, will go in and trap beaver out, take them, you know, kill them, and then wait for new beaver to move in, and same problem, just recycles itself. So it's sort of a mowing the lawn effect. You, uh, wildlife services by the government is mows the lawn, which we've talked about on this program before, which is go in, remove it all, wait for the problem to arise again, populations to erupt, create all the uh, surrounding and consequential issues of overpopulation of nuisance pests and then kill it again and wait for it to start over. But your prog- your project, the Humane Wildlife Services, deals much more with um, rather than removing, trapping, and killing wildlife and waiting for it to start again, your project deals with um, some of the understandable disastrous outcomes of animals and living with people and works with a new concept that involves, as um, I believe you put it, eviction and reuniting. How does this work? Well, a really good example would be to go back to our raccoon friends and um, talk about when they do invade, when they are structural invaders, they go into the attic or the chimney. Uh, very often it's a female who wants to find a secure den to give birth and raise young. Now, traditionally, raccoons in buildings have been trapped by private you know, interests. Often, very often people who would be recreational or commercial trappers uh, to begin with and, and simply know how to trap animals. And they'd be removed and killed or at best removed and taken somewhere else and let go. 
Well, if you're a female with uh, a litter in an attic, then that means your your babies are going to die. Ah. We didn't want to see that happen. We never have, of course, wanted to see that happen. But we understand that raccoons don't belong in attics, too. So we found a company in Canada about oh, almost 10 years ago that was doing this kind of work uh, completely without removing animals from their home ranges and completely with success in getting moms and babies reunited. We copied that model, and it simply is this. You, you arrive on the scene, you go into the attic, or you go up onto the smoke shelf of the fire, fireplace, you find the babies. Your mom's usually hiding in a corner, and you can't get her, so uh, you, you wait and take the babies, and you put them in a special box that is called a reunion box that can be heated in the spring or, or filled with insulation from the attic to make it comfy. Take that outside. Put it as close as you can get to the point where the raccoon is, is entering that structure. We're, we always find the entry points, and those, that's what we call them. And then put a one-way door on that entry point and armor it with some very durable wire. And wait for the mother to come out that night. She comes out. She uh, goes through the one-way door, can't get back in. She finds her babies because they're moving and, and vocalizing and says, well, this place is done. I'm done with this place. It's done with me. And moves them to another location. And you said something very important in this little video I had mentioned before, that most wildlife has several backups in terms of living situations. This is something we discovered when we did that original rabies study, because we trapped and radio collared dozens of raccoons. And we found them consistently using different dens hollow trees, sometimes down storm sewers, sometimes in buildings and, and you know, chimneys. But always, we found, we, we never had a raccoon in that study, even if we only had that collar functioning for a few weeks or months, who only used one place to rest during the day. We always found them in multiple den sites. So we know we can, we can get the raccoons out of the buildings, cause them to go somewhere else and they'll be fine because they know that home range, they know that environment, they'll find an alternate den and they'll occupy that and they'll just go on with life. So your project is working with wildlife options, that wildlife in its natural environment chooses options, it knows it has options, they are thinking uh, uh, emotional, that might be up to some discussion, but they are thinking problem-solving beings to work within their environment. They know it a lot better than we do with their, what I like to call, indoor living environment. So um, a question that comes up uh, with relocation uh, and translocation, uh, I believe you said that's not much what you do, but what is the percentage of wildlife repeat offenders and how do you deal with that? Let's say you've um, evicted and reunited a family of raccoons or other species and they've moved. Uh, what, is the, what is the reoccurring uh, percentage that they come back and to the same home and start all over again? And how do yeah. you deal with that? That's a great point. Um, well, when we go into a, a job, we're going to find every entry point and we're going to prevent them from regaining access by sealing those off. And okay. often we don't do the, the final finished seal, but we use a very heavy gauge wire to 
you know, kind of like educate that animal, that mother raccoon, as she comes back to that site and sees that wire and tries to challenge and test it and can't get through it, she gives up on that, on that structure entirely. As for going into other structures, you know, the neighbor's house or the house down the road, well, we try to explain to people, you know, the best thing to do is to practice preventative care. And that's what the Wildlife Wild Wild Neighbors Project is about, and well, yeah. bringing communities together and all these various stakeholders that you had mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about this preventative care for our our listeners. What can we do to prevent this issue from even starting? We can educate ourselves, and we can talk. One of the most important things in any wildlife conflict situation is to realize that. It's often not about people and animals, but about people and people. Right. So some people in the community don't want to see a single goose on the lake. Some people want to see thousands of geese on the lake because they really love geese. Well, those people have to talk to each other and come to some reasonable understanding about what's right and what's acceptable and what things should be in that community to satisfy you know, in the majority of the people. We can't be driven by extremes. We have to understand that people have different and legitimate interests and values, and, and we have to work with each other as much as we have to work with the animals in order to bring you know, a, a, a reasonable consensus about. That, that's incredible. So this is, So how can people find out where to find their urban wildlife project, or how do they connect with you? and find out how to get one started? Well, it's pretty easy to connect with us. You can just go to our website, um, humanesociety.org, and begin to look for, you can look for coyotes if you want to, you know, learn more or dialogue with somebody about coyotes. You can look for deer. Uh, we're constantly posting and refreshing information on that website. And um, I'd say it's the portal. I'd say it's the entry point through which you can can, can get to us. So they can contact their parks department or parks and recreation or their wildlife department and, and, and bring up the point that they would like to do more of a, a friendly uh, wildlife, wild neighbors project versus uh, remove, kill, and uh, extirpate any particular species in their area. They can, and, and increasingly the, the wildlife agencies and the parks departments are, are embracing this concept, learning more about it themselves. It's, it's kind of a slow go because, you know, this is all new. When we were, when I was growing up, um, I, there were no wild animals, in, 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 even in the suburbs. I mean, it was very rare in central Massachusetts in the 1950s to see a deer even if you spend a lot of time out in the fields and, and the woods. Now they're there and all over the place, and people say they're too numerous, but that's another story. Well, oh, it brings so. up a point that as our human communities have grown, enlarged, and encompassed more of um, the buffer zones and between the core areas, which you talk about in this video that I mentioned earlier, and the unprotected areas, there's this sort of buffer zone where everything has to meet together. So as we've grown in our populations and take over these what were wild spaces, wildlife is also 
accommodating and learning our habits and getting used to understanding that, wow, uh, this, this great open space green park has everything I need. So they have a tendency to move in after, let's say, a huge disturbance of building a new community development suburban area. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Because, you know, I think in every respect, and I don't think you'd find many people disagree with this, the more diversity you have in wild things that live around you, the greater the quality of that environment. So we have, you know, we benefit in all kinds of ways, and that gets us back to that concept of biophilia, by having natural, you know, areas around us, by having animals, by having diversity of plants by having even these little microfauna that uh, we usually don't pay much attention to, but which are really important and significant things. Well, you know, we, we've got a couple minutes to the break. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? I talk about this a lot on this program, but I'd like to hear it from you and our listeners and what Humane Society is doing. What are these benefits that we get from having wildlife around us in an urban area? We're beginning to really learn more about this. Um, what we have is an indication that the, the toxicants and the pollutants and the other things that might be there are, are, are likely not to be there when we see these diversities. We're seeing improvements and, and benefits to human health and especially to human mental health that studies are now beginning to focus on and, and we realize that there's a classic study in a hospital of patients who are put in two recovery situations. One is a bare wall, the other is a wall on which a mural of a forest has been has been painted. And they actually have documented faster recovery times, the people who see that natural scene as opposed to who just see a, a blank wall. Well, uh, these, I'm sorry, go, go ahead. No, no, I just say these things are beginning to unfold and we're beginning to learn more about them. And I think a lot of people just intuitively know and and understand that we feel better when we're in a naturalized environment. Well, that brings us to a point that we talked about yesterday, the, the human psyche and our need for wilderness, wildlife, and wild places, even if we don't ever go to one, like let's say go far on safari to Africa to see what is is commonly accepted as a division between wildlife, carnivorous wildlife, predatory wildlife, and all of its niches that are filled by everything up and down that um, trophic level, the trophic cascade and trophic levels to this need. Um, I mean, our advertising involves it, car advertising, you're out in a pristine area. It brings us this comfort. So um, you had talked a little bit about, um, we talked a little bit about this in this, uh, in, in wildlife conservation, which I'm very involved in, we talk about the if it pays, it stays concept. And that applies a value to wildlife. Well, it's very difficult to Apply, apply a monetary value to the squirrels in your yard, but they still provide a benefit and a value to us. So that's that's sort of what you're talking about. So when, what is your experience when we come to an urban area like a deep inner city and people encounter the coyote uh, crossing the LA freeway and are so surprised with about it? What about this disconnect that we're having in deep urban areas, I mean, really solidly developed areas that wildlife is moving into, 
and how can we help reconnect to the reality of nature outside our door, outside our door versus living it through nature TV? Well, that is a great question. Should we take it up after the break, or do you want to? Yeah, let's do that. So thank you for reminding me. My engineers will appreciate it. So this is Ellie Weiss with Dr. John Hadidian, and we'll be right back. Stick with us. dog barking or an angel singing then you know that you're listening to waking up in america heard every wednesday at three pacific time valerie kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential adventure is always a must on waking up in america with valerie kirkard every wednesday at three pacific what if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest, Dr. John Hadidian from the Humane Society U.S. So right before the break, we were talking about the values and benefits that we do receive from wildlife, uh, whether we realize it or not, and about deep, deeply developed urbanized communities that are isolated from let's say, open parks and spaces and the ability to, or the financial ability to get out into wild places where wild, even urban wild places where wildlife larger than squirrels and raccoons interact. So um, tell us a little bit more about how we can engage inner city kids who have never seen wildlife, anything larger than a squirrel, um, to have no concept about what wildlife is and that it lives with us. How do we engage them beyond nature TV? I think there's a number of ways we can do that. And, and, and first, I would say we give them access to kids are learned by experience. They're experiential things, uh, beings. And, and, and um, you know, take them to a place and just allow them to be kids and to explore a natural area. 
is, I think, the critical first step in getting them to realize that there's something beyond the, you know, TV and beyond the concrete and asphalt that they normally see. Then, you know, you could have programs in school that focused on different uh, natural species, natural history, histories of different species. There is a lot of emphasis today in this country on projects that deal with citizen science, where kids can just, you know, count birds in their backyard or go out on a Saturday morning and on a foray and look for something, enumerate it, report the data, get online, see how many hundreds of other kids are reporting data from their homes and neighborhoods and begin to grasp a larger totality of, you know, the natural world. That's a, that's a great project. It, it quite hadn't had occurred to me, you know, crossing over these points of access and gateways for the inner city kid to connect with nature and to start these projects. What a great classroom project. So if any of our listeners out there are interested in either starting up or bringing to their school or PTA project and after-school activities, this is a great way to start. A simple concept like counting birds. There's so many innovative concepts. Yeah, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. um, Oh, I love that site. Yeah, up in Ithaca does a lot of this project bird feeder and and really can engage, you know, a broad, broad spectrum of the public in looking at birds, which people are fascinated with anyway, and um, learning and as well contributing to better understanding. There's another concept that the Patuxent Wildlife Research Center has been promoting for many years called the BioBlitz, where you uh, take your neighborhood, your community, you find willing volunteers here in D.C. It's usually folks from the Smithsonian Institution, you go out on a Saturday and the, the community goes out, kids and parents both, and looks for uh, biological samples of plants, of aquatic in, in, invertebrates, of anything they can pick up, bugs, bring back to the experts and have them classify, you know, identify and classify and categorize them. And then at the end of the day, you... You know, instill in the community an awareness of how really and truly diverse the living things that are around them are. Which would naturally segue into understanding what this truly diverse, biodiverse ecosystem means for us. It, it really is about our survival. It's not necessarily about loving wildlife or um, having it in your backyard, but in the, the importance of its survival really means the, our survival. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of cities as the human environment because, for one, and we only did this in 2008, uh, humanity as a, in its totality as a species crossed the boundary from fewer of us living in cities to more of us living in cities. In this country, we did this in 1915. We went from 50 to 51 percent of the population being urban. As most people know now, it's Eight out of every ten Americans lives in a metropolitan area with a million people or more population. That's a big shift. Yeah. Um, and we're, as a species, 200,000 years old, and all of a sudden now we're urban where before we weren't. Right. And, and people talk about well, what happened before. What were all those connections? What was life like? How did we relate to the natural environment? And, you know, I think a lot of us think 
but having spent all that previous time in that context and now having cities, there are challenges to adapting, coping, understanding, and and living in cities that really we need to think about and think about our past and think about what we used to have in that past that we don't have now and there's, in our cities. Wouldn't you agree that there is a movement, a paradigm shift that is happening? I mean, evolution happens over th- three generations or so, and we're right at this precipice of movements across the board, whether you go on Facebook or this conversation here and this program, that more and more people are looking for that, I'm going to put it in quotation marks, organic lifestyle and removing our um, industrialized uh, food systems back to something that represents and replicates more what we used to do. So this is kind of a natural segue into what we teased about earlier um, that you had mentioned, and I've read E.O. Wilson back in the 1970s, the biophilic community and the biophilic city. Um, How about we finish our program? We've got about seven, eight minutes left. How about we finish our program with you helping us to understand how this works, what it is, and how we as individuals can move toward this? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, it's a wonderful concept that uh, E.O. Wilson and a fellow from Yale University, Stephen Kellert, kind of collaborated on. Um, and the concept had been out there, but they really brought it into focus and and have developed and, and sustained it and taken it to where it is now. Uh, there are other folks. There's a, a professor of architecture at the uh, University of Virginia named Tim Beatley, who was talking a lot about biophilic cities and trying to bring a, a global community he just held a conference last year, which I spoke at, that had uh, people from a dozen international venues, cities, come and talk about what their city was doing in, in order to bring it around, as you say, a paradigm shift away from that asphalt, concrete, glass, you know, sterility to more of a natural vitality. So, can you give us some examples of where these cities are popping up and how we if we can learn more about it and go to our county commissioners and our our city government and parks and wildlife to sort of engage and bring up this concept? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Birmingham, England, is a prime example. Singapore is another great example. Um, you can go to the Biophilic Cities website that the University of Virginia maintains, and I think all you need to do is Google Biophilic City. And let's spell that, B-I-O-P-H-I-L-I-C-S, correct? Biophilic, yeah, okay. no S on the end. Just no, bio- Okay, just Biophilic. Yeah. Okay. Biophilic Cities, and um, there you go. And it's a snowball type thing. You, you go from there to other places and, and see other concepts. And we just met, and, and Professor Beatley was here giving a talk to the environmental network folks in, in the District of Columbia just a week ago at, and talking about Washington, D.C. as a biophilic city. So you can, you can try to you know, find within your own context, within your own city, within your own municipality, the interest and the motivation to kind of put this concept together and to take it forward. And it, 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 it's, it involves so many elements. Uh, design, biophilic design, a uh, classic example, a green roof. Now people are building 
are putting up buildings and, and making green walls so that you have both a horizontal and a vertical structure on a building that is occupied by plant life. That's what uh, immediately occurred to me. There is a lot of movement now to the community garden, providing your own food and, you know, whether it's a container garden or a small community plot or a neighborhood victory garden type of concept, um, to living walls, uh, which is what you just talked about. And you can actually grow vegetables vertically on a living wall. Yeah, you can. And that's a great, great uh, component, this, this... Going to the land and, and creating your own, your own food resources, that's a great component of biophilia. And you also have people in cities like Stockholm who are trying to take the natural drainage system that existed there before the city came and imposed itself upon the rivers and the streams and, and often buried them. Uh, the Tiber Creek in Washington, D.C., famously runs through a great big culvert that goes underneath the, the Congress uh, and unearth these things. In L.A., the L.A. River. People I was just thinking that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a classic example of a, a wonderfully productive water feature that, that has been, you know, it's like taming or it's like caging uh, an animal that should be roaming over hundreds of square miles. It's so, really, so how it, could, it, it needs to be exposed. So... So how do we go about um, changing this? How do we go about removing some of these structures that we are so, uh, in this, these last, let's say, five decades, so used to living with? And it goes back to what we've been talking about, to re-engage our minds as individuals, to participate with our communities, to bring this concept back. What are some of the simple things one person can do? One one small piece at a time, really. I mean, putting a rain barrel on uh, the side of your house. There is a f- wonderful concept that's used a lot in Europe where you have driveways and parking lots that instead of completely sealing them over with asphalt, the, you, you get these concrete, these cast concrete structures that have, allow you to grow, put soil in the middle. They bear the weight of the vehicle but they allow grass plants to grow. And that soil, that, that, that area that should be solid in a traditional parking lot, suddenly is permeable. And that water isn't lost, it's captured. And it's put so, back into the ground. So what you're saying is there are a lot of things we can do in our landscape architecture, not only building architecture and going green and finding different sustainable ways to go about developing the biophilic city, but there are landscape solutions that we can do that will, rather than absorb and overuse a limited resource, water, to helping that feed a larger community as opposed to just your tap. Exactly. So rather than have it run off and carry all the pollutants into the local stream which goes into the local river which goes into the Chesapeake Bay or the you know LA Bay uh, you're holding all that stuff back you're recharging groundwater and, and, and at the same time producing more of a naturalized system I mean nature does have some things going for it one is the wisdom to know you know how to move things around how to how to space things out how to cope with what we see as impossible problems for us by simply, you know, allowing drainages 
water to drain into the soil as a simple example. Water will go where it wants to go. Anyone who's had a flood or anything like that will know that. I would like to mention one thing in terms of the rain barrel. It would be worthwhile to check with your city departments because here in Colorado it's not legal to um, capture water. So it's important to understand the water rights and water flow of your state or your city to know what water solutions and recycling and renewable solutions that you can implement. So that is a a critical point. But what it takes is the willingness to um, be involved, to take a step, to be willing to be one of the stakeholders and participate and find out who's doing what in your community and connect with the Humane Society. You can read, you can find uh, John on the website and watch this video that I mentioned earlier. And if it's not in your city, well, then you can be the one to be the activist, if you want to call it that, to get things started, to talk to your neighbor. It's called communicating and being a part of the world. So we have like maybe one minute left, John. What would be the most important takeaway that you would like our listeners to have today? I think if I had to give you a takeaway, it would be I think things are getting better. I think we're becoming more knowledgeable and educated and uh, about the natural world and about the need not to lose it in these places, cities, which we have chosen, you know, most of us to live in. And, and the tremendous number of people are being very active and creative and thinking about what to do. I did not mention, but this is one of the simplest and most important things that people can probably do, which is to plant native plants in their yard rather than ornamentals that, even though they look beautiful, really compete with our, our sense of trying to balance and harmonize the natural world and live as much within the context of the parameters of, of what was here and what evolved here and what belongs here for you in Colorado something different from me in Washington DC but you know work with what makes sense well I thank you for that I mean we came up with a lot of very doable solutions today and you can call it living in harmony which is not an airy fairy concept from just rather than something pretty to look at that's something that is useful provides a surface excuse me a service not only to us in terms of our psyche and our willingness to live with nature but also helps nature live with us so we are out of time today i hope you enjoyed our program john thank you so much for being my guest i could talk to you for a really long time and perhaps maybe you'll come back again and we'll um flesh out this concept and talk a little more about what the rest of the Humane Society uh, is doing, both nationally and internationally. But today, we're out of time, so thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, and I'd love to come back. Well, thank you. I look forward to having you back again. So um, we're out of time today. This is Ellie Weiss, my guest, Dr. John Hadidian, and this is Our Wild World. So step out and go touch your feet on the grass and think about what you heard today. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 